Welcome back to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Kimberly Winston, sitting in this week for Umbreen Khan. We're talking about the top religion stories of the year, as chosen by the members of the Religion News Association. Virtually every one of these stories has a hot-button issue at its heart. Gender, sexuality, equality, human rights, politics. Our next guest, Tia Kolbaba, knows this well. Tia co-teaches a popular course at Rutgers University called Religion Now, 21st Century Controversies. Tia told me she teaches her students that religion is not separate from everything else, but is almost always in the room if you know how to look for it. I asked her to pinpoint the religion factors at work in some of the top stories of today and beyond. Tia Kolbaba, welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. Very nice to have you. I think it's your first time on the show. Oh, yes, it is. I'm 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 happy to be here. Uh-huh. As, as you taught the course this year in 2023, what were some yeah. of the biggest things that stood out from religion in the news that you taught in this course? The iron is hot kind of subjects in the spring of 2023 were... Um, reproductive rights, contraception, abortion. So we did that. Um, we talked about religious nationalism and and religious identity and religious pluralism, I think. I mean, there were a lot of LGBTQ issues. We studied the Respect for Marriage Act, which passed in the spring of 2023, which was the federal law that requires all states to recognize any marriage from another state. Okay, so let's talk about reproductive rights this year and religion. Where have you seen religion at play in the ongoing battle for reproductive rights this year in a way that might have been different from previous years? So there are sort of two interesting things, I think, that have really developed religiously um, this year. And one of them is the conservative Christian pro-life or anti-abortion movement has managed for quite a long time, since the 80s at least, to convince nearly everyone that they represent the religious position. And that means that they even often claim that it is not a specifically conservative Christian claim to say that a human being with legal rights exists from conception, right? Mm -hmm. That, That theirs is just sort of the ba- the baseline religious position. And I think that Dobbs came as a real shock to the left, maybe not so much to people who are deeply involved in reproductive rights movements and pro-choice movements, but to people who are only sort of vaguely paying attention, I think Dobbs was a real shock. And mm-hmm. um, so one of the most interesting things that's happened is that we actually have people standing up and saying, look, I am religious. I am Christian. I am Jewish. I am Buddhist. And my religious belief is that a woman should have the autonomy to make this decision on her own. The Brennan Center for Justice has this Center for Reproductive Rights, and they track, um, they're tracking abortion laws and abortion um, lawsuits. And right now, they, you know, they show that there have been lawsuits filed in various states on behalf of Jews, on behalf of Christians of various denominations, on behalf of Buddhists. Um, so that's been one of the interesting things is to see the articulation of other religious positions that I think had been sort of drowned out. 
but it seems to me that since Dobbs, there's been a reassertion on the part of a lot of those religious people of like, look, I'm religious and I don't agree with these conservative Christians. Is there anything that you are looking for in terms of reproductive rights in 2024 and religion? What might we expect? Might we see some unusual alliances, cases? Well, I think abortion is is going to continue to be big as an issue in politics because of the 2024 elections. I think Democrats have decided that they have a stick to beat Republicans with. And um, you can see Republicans already trying to figure out what to do about that because they, you know, they obviously can't win without their pro-life supporters, but they also mm-hmm. um, are aware that they're losing because of total abortion bans. So that's interesting. Um, but also, I guess the other religious thing, that, uh, the thing I'm watching, and I really don't know what to expect, and this is partly, again, that I've talked to my colleague, Michal Rauscher, a lot, uh, a little about this and read a very good article she wrote for The Revealer in October that one of the things the evangelical pro-life movement tends to do is to claim that, for example, a Jewish uh, group or a Jewish rabbi who's involved in a lawsuit against abortion bans um, really has secular objections to abortion bans and are sort of only using religion as an excuse, oh. right? So so these cases are cases where people are saying, look, you are violating my religious freedom as a Jew by imposing this Christian view of conception, right? Pro-choice cannot be a religious position, seems to be the, the basic argument. So I'm really interested to see what the courts, and of course, we have some very conservative courts right now, what the courts are going to do with that. Let's talk about what's going on in um, in Russia with Vladimir Putin. Um, it's very difficult to give students enough background um, for them to to really understand it. But we did. We you know we, we we came up with some Atlantic articles and things that were for a general kind of educated audience. We talked quite a bit about the way that Vladimir Putin and the Patriarch Kirill are trying to set themselves up as the defenders of Western Christian civilization. For the American right, you know, the things that Putin says about defending Christian values against LGBTQ stuff, against, you know, um, Western decadence and so on and so forth, Putin is well aware of that. And he has done a lot of setting himself up um, Viktor Orban in Hungary has has tried to do similar things, but he hasn't had as much success as Putin. He's claiming this same sort of thing, that I understand that Western Christian civilization is under assault from two sides, from Islam and from um, secular people and the LGBTQ agenda and, you know, the sort of setting themselves up in a way that is exacerbating our political polarization here in the States as well, because a lot of people on the Christian right in America see that as, you know, this is why you see the Christian right in America supporting Putin. Um, there just, there just is no way that they should be, um, including that, you know, the Orthodox church under Patriarch Kirill isn't going to allow evangelical Protestant 
ministries into Russia, but this sense that, you know, Western civilization is under attack from um, both secular humanists and Islam is, you know, it doesn't have to be rational. It just is. In 2024, where might we see that play out in terms of American religious right um, support for Vladimir Putin? Well, I think we're already seeing it in the Republicans in Congress who want us to stop supporting Ukraine. You know, Putin has tried very hard to set Ukraine up as the enemy in the sense of, again, wanting to go into this, you know, secular decadence and and join Europe in its secular decadence and Russia and as the last bastion of, of Christian civilization. And yet it is resonating very strongly with the with the Christian right in America. Let's talk about what's going on in um, Uganda involving U.S. evangelicals. Um, yeah. And why do why you teach this in your course? Christianity is population wise is exploding in Africa. I, it, it is unbelievable. And those African Christian, a, a lot of them are Pentecostals because Pentecostalism is the kind of Christianity that's growing most quickly. And while they're, um, you know, in some ways socially having a lot of beneficial effects in terms of um, lifting people out of poverty, it's very good. It's been very good for women and families because if if fathers and husbands convert, then they stop drinking and gambling and become you know, spending the family's resources on macho things. But these Christianities in the global South tend to be socially very conservative. The attitudes toward homosexuality or any kind of gender fluidity or anything like that are, are very negative. It is true that U.S. evangelicals went to Uganda and exacerbated the homophobia and the anti-homosexual, um, anti-LGBTQ legislation and policies and so on. But it, they couldn't have done that if it wasn't also there um, in in the kind of Christianity that was already in Uganda. There's an Anglican bishop in Uganda and a Catholic bishop in Uganda who have both praised this anti-LGBTQ, anti, well, it was basically anti-homosexual acts <laughs> legislation that the Ugandan parliament passed. Um, and they were both reprimanded by their superiors, right? This is not the Catholic Church's position as far as the Pope is concerned. It's not the Anglican Communion's position. But as Ugandan Christians, even in those, you know, what we think of as much more mainstream churches, um, those two men thought it was sort of great to punish homosexuals. This law passed by the Ugandan government makes homosexual acts punishable by death. Yes. And this is not modern Western separation of church and state post-enlightenment Christianity. A lot of it is in spirit churches, you know, Pentecostals yeah. and churches that believe that the Holy Spirit is acting to, to heal, that people speak in tongues, there are miracles done, there are exorcisms. So these are Christians who in many ways are, you know, they're closer to their New Testament. Um, than kind of Western mainline liberal Christianity. They believe that the secular governments are persecuting them and that the devil walks among them. So a lot of times if you say, well, Christianity is actually growing faster than Islam, 
that kind of relieves people who are worried about Islamic extremism. But then you have to say, but we're not talking about your Methodist church down the road. <laughs> Again, I think most people in the first world are, are not aware of this phenomenon at all, but it's enormous. When you think about teaching this course next year, in the six, eight months since you last taught it, a lot has happened globally. I'm thinking, of course, of the conflict between Israel and Hamas. As you look at teaching this course again in the future, what would you have your students know about what's going on right now uh, in the coming year? I think that the way I would do it is to talk about um, fundamentalism and extremism. And what we do is we spend time talking about um, uh, what, what, what Bruce Lincoln, whose definition of religion we use in the class, calls maximalism and minimalism in religion. That religion is, is informs and shapes everything they do and, and everything they think to minimalism, which are more, you know, the people who are like, my religion is a private matter and I practice it at home and I don't want to talk about it. Right. right. Um, and so putting them in the context of, I mean, what you might loosely call other fundamentalists, although fundamentalism is a problematic term. Um, so I like the maximalist thing. Is, mm-hmm. So we talk about several kinds of maximalists, right? We talk about these are the people who think, you know, who really believe that um, their politics and everything else, that they are they are doing God's will or pushing for God's will to be done. And there's, it's black and white and it's us and them. You started out this interview, you said something that I wholeheartedly agree with. So I want to return to it. You said that religion is everywhere. Yeah. So the question that I want to ask you is this, why is religion a good, if not excellent prism through which to look at the state of our world, and what's important in current events. Why religion over some other corner of our human lives? My interest in religion has always been in the ways that religion um, is related to people's sense of their identity. And of what unites them to some other human beings and maybe divides them from others. And at its best, at, at its very best, every religious tradition that I'm aware of repeatedly asserts that, you know, that we're all in this together. But at its worst, religion gives a kind of sacred and transcendent weight to our prejudices and our and our sense of who is them, right? Who, who they are, as opposed to us. Then there's this sort of carte blanche to do terrible things in the name of God. You know, I mean, in the name of God, or even in the name of love, right? I'm constantly reiterating to my students that all of these identities are, are fashioned by human beings. They're fashioned by communities. They're constructed and made they were different in the past and they will be different in the future 
So I guess for me, it's understanding that there seems to be something hardwired in us as human beings that we are religious. Um, but the question also is, it seems to me that religion always offers those two options. There's the sort of what the religious requirement is, what God wants of us is to take care of each other and to be one human race and so on and so forth. Or what God wants of us is, you know, purity and that we make sure that none of the impure people get in. My guest has been Tia Kolbaba, an associate professor of religion at Rutgers University. You can find a link to a brief video of the class Kolbaba teaches, Religion Now, 21st Century Controversies, on our website, www.interfaithvoices.org. When we come back, we leave international and national stories behind to go local, local, local in religion news. Stay with us. (laughs) 